Hello comrades and welcome back to Marxist Voice, the podcast of Socialist Appeal. This week we're publishing a discussion held between Jorge Martin and Hamid Alizadeh, who are both activists and writers for the international Marxist tendency, on the topic of the conflict in Ukraine, which has been raging for around seven months now, and in which there have recently been some new developments. This discussion was recorded just over a week ago, uh, following the rout of the Russian forces in the Kharkiv Oblast, but since then, Russia has announced a partial mobilization for the war effort, which should see an extra 300,000 uh, troops drafted into the conflict. And Russia has also held a series of referenda in the eastern regions of Ukraine over the question of their annexation to Russia. As well as that, the Russian government has uh, vowed to use all means at its disposal to protect its territorial integrity. So all of this really points towards a new stage opening up in this conflict. And it is our job as Marxists to understand these events, to interpret them, and to provide a perspective for what is going to happen in the future. So in this discussion, Hamid and Jorge will touch upon the main events of the conflict so far, the role of the imperialist powers in stoking up this conflict, and how we can fight for an independent class solution to the problem of war in this region and across the world. Obviously, this is a living situation. And I would encourage all of our listeners to keep up to date with the events that are taking place on Marxist.com, which is the website of the International Marxist Tendency, where you can find a Marxist analysis of events that are taking place not just in Ukraine and Russia, but across the world. And before we get started, I'd just like to mention that there will be four talks at the upcoming Revolution Festival, a weekend festival of Marxist ideas held by Socialist Appeal, on the topic of imperialism and war, including discussions on topics like the national question in Ukraine, should Marxists support NATO, as well as a discussion on Marxism and pacifism. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, head to the link in our show notes or head to www.revolutionfestival.co.uk to find out more information, including the full schedule of 32 talks covering topics uh, like philosophy, economics, history, current events, and so on, and to get your tickets now. So without further ado, let's get started with this week's episode of Marxist Voice, the podcast of Socialist Appeal. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome uh, to this uh, meeting. My name is uh, Hamid Alizadeh from the uh, editorial board of the In Defense of Marxism website on Jorge Martin's uh, channel, and he's also a member of the editorial board of uh, Marxist.com. And today we'll be discussing uh, the war in Ukraine after the recent uh, offensive in the Kharkiv region uh, by the Ukrainian army. So as I said, I'm here with uh, Jorge Martin. Uh, yes. Can you, can you hear me? Yeah, <laughs> clearly. Okay, that's good. So, yeah, I think uh, we can jump straight into it. Now, before we go into uh, the, 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 the specific conditions and the situation in the Ukraine uh, today, I think it would be good to start with an overall um, assessment of the war in Ukraine and how we as Marxists view this war. Um, now, as uh, as an organization, the International Marxist Tendency has been following this war from, from day one, providing analysis uh, from a Marxist perspective. And I think it would be good to just to recap uh, our position uh, and uh, where the war was basically up until uh, recently. So maybe, Jorge, you want to, uh, you want to, to, to go ahead with that? Yeah, 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 I can do that. 
Just uh, briefly, of course, uh, we we have issued a lot of material, the international Marxist tendencies since the war started and before the war. For us, this is a this is an inter-imperialist conflict. That is a conflict between NATO imperialism, which is obviously dominated by by the United States, and uh, Russian uh, imperialism. We we are opposed to this war. We are opposed to the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, but at the same time, we understand that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was, in in turn, a response to NATO's eastward uh, drive, which has been going on for for the last 30 years. And there were a whole number of provocations uh, carried out by, by the West. Uh, so we oppose this war. We oppose this war on, on both sides. As I say, uh, Russia's uh, intervention in invasion of Ukraine in February is, a, is, an, is an act of imperialism. Uh, it's covered, as all imperialist acts are, is covered in a whole number of justifications and excuses and so on. But th- th- these excuses are as, as valid as the excuses that uh, U.S. imperialism uses when they intervene in other countries. At the same time, uh, most of us listening here and, and, uh, and ourselves, we're based in uh, London. Our, our, the main task of uh, revolutionaries, the main task of Marxists, is to oppose the ruling class, the aims of the ruling class in your own uh, country. As Karl Liebknecht said during uh, World War One, the main enemy of the working class is at home. That doesn't mean it's, it's the only enemy of the working class. But we should uh, concentrate our fire first on the aims of the ruling class in our countries. In this case, in in Britain, uh, it's a ruling class that is uh, second fiddle or or a junior partner of U.S. uh, imperialism. And this is what uh, we have been trying to highlight throughout this uh, period. Now, the war has been through different uh, phases. The first phase of the war, uh, in the first maybe two months, Russia attempted to overthrow the regime in uh, Kiev through a very quick, uh, fast intervention. They uh, extended the supply lines very much. They overstretched the supply lines and uh, surrounded uh, several of the main cities, Kharkiv, Kiev, and so on. And they uh, occupied quite a large part of territory north of uh, Crimea. And uh, this this phase came to an end at the beginning of uh, April. The Russians did not achieve their aims, their immediate aims, which was the, the, the change of regime in, uh, in, uh, in Kiev or capitulation of uh, the Ukrainian uh, government. And so, therefore, they changed their tactics and they reconcentrated their forces on the battle in the in the Donbas. And ever since then, they have been making uh, progress. Have been making uh, slow but uh, relentless progress. They first took uh, Mariupol, then they had the big battle around uh, Lysychansk and Severodonetsk in uh, Luhansk. Uh, and after they won that battle, they were able to take complete control of uh, the Luhansk uh, Oblast, the Luhansk uh, region. And then they continued to advance over the Sibergs, Soledar, Bakhmut uh, defensive line of the Ukrainian uh, army. But the advance here has been much, much uh, slower. 
And in fact, it hasn't, there hasn't been any significant breakthrough for the last three months, approximately. Um, and then came this, this offensive in Kharkiv two weeks ago, which was a surprise to everyone. And uh, it's, it, it changed for, for, for a period of time. It changed, it changed the, the dynamics of the, of the war as it was uh, taking place up until, that, uh, up until that time. Yes, it was Napoleon, I think, who said that uh, war is the most complex of all equations. And I would say that until recently, it looked very much like uh, the Ukrainians uh, were on the defensive and that initiative was in the hands of the, of the Russians uh, in, in the war. Uh, but then this uh, Kharkiv uh, offensive uh, happened. Maybe you can start it uh, by, by explaining exactly what happened and what has occurred uh, on the ground in the past uh, couple of weeks. Yes. Um, up, until two, up until two weeks ago, the situation was more or less as I, as I have described. This is a, a war that's been going on for several months now. But it seemed, it seemed uh, that uh, since Russia has overwhelming superiority in firepower, they were able to use that to their advantage. And they were advancing uh, very slowly. Uh, it's true, but they, they were still uh, advancing in, in, uh, in the different sections of the front, particularly along, along the, the front in the, in the Donbass in, in the east. The Ukrainian side has obviously a superiority in manpower. The, the Russia has only committed a, a relatively limited amount of uh, troops to this uh, war. And, uh, and, and obviously, Ukraine has a large uh, reserve of, of uh, manpower. And they were using this to their advantage in the different uh, fronts. What this meant is that the front in the Donbass and also other fronts had become like a meat grinder where the, the, some of the most experienced troops have, had been uh, defeated or, or depleted. And uh, the Ukrainians were using mostly territorial defense troops. That is, uh, ordinary civilians have been called up for military service, given very little uh, um, training, very little equipment, and sent to the front. And they were dying at a very fast rate. Uh, during, the, during the summer, in the months of July and August, the different sources from the Ukrainian high command, they were talking about maybe 800 up to 1,000 killed every every day in the Donbass front. So th this was becoming very costly war uh, of attrition on the Ukrainian uh, part. At that time, the West decided to step up because we, we uh, as I said at the beginning, this is an inter-imperialist inter uh, war. It's been fought in uh, Ukraine, but it's basically a conflict between NATO and Russia. So Western imperialism has uh, dedicated enormous amounts of money, military uh, aid, military supplies, training, intelligence, and so on, to make sure that uh, Russia is weakened as a result of this uh, war. So this, this was the situation um, in July and August. As I say, there was a, an increase in the number of uh, artillery pieces and the quality of artillery pieces with the arrival of the HIMARS, which are multiple rocket uh, launchers, which are more precise, they have a longer range. And this did have some uh, impact in slowing down the Russian uh, advance and hitting the Russians in the, in the rear in a number of places that previously Western uh, supplied artillery of the Ukrainian army could not uh, reach them. And then uh, for all this period, there was a lot of talk 
about the Ukrainian offensive. And everyone was talking about this Ukrainian offensive. The Ukrainians themselves were talking about it publicly, and this offensive was to, supposed to take place in, in the Kherson uh, region. Now, uh, whenever you are in a war and you're about to launch an offensive, you, you're supposed to also rely on, uh, on the element of surprise. And so you don't really announce it publicly. So at that time, uh, many people were speculating and I also thought this, that, uh, that in reality, the Kherson Offensive was a uh, maneuver, a uh, trick of the Ukrainian uh, army to divert, to force the Russians to move troops to the Kherson front and therefore move them away from other fronts, including the Donbass. And this did work to a certain extent. The Russians did move a lot of troops and artillery and uh, so on to the Kherson front. Uh, but then th this came as a surprise. This, this Herson offensive started at the beginning of September, and it wasn't very effective. The Ukrainians advanced on a number of uh, sections of the front. They crossed the Ingulets uh, River, which was the defensive line uh, prior to that. But then they were, uh, they were stopped on the tracks, and it was clear that the Ukrainians were sustaining heavy losses in uh, personnel in that uh, front. Then a week later, uh, at the end of the first week in uh, September, then they, they launched another offensive, the Kharkiv offensive. In reality, these two offensives are part of the, same, uh, of the same operation, let's say, to divert the attention of the Russian forces towards the Kherson front and then identify the weakest point in the, in the, the Russian defensive line and attack there. And this is the, the meaning of this uh, Kharkiv offensive. This took place uh, north of uh, Izium, along uh, and across the Severodonetsk uh, river, which, which in that section of the front was, was the defensive line and moves from, from north to south. This took the Russians by surprise, quite clearly. So the, 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 this can only be explained by, by a massive failure of, Ukraine, of, of Russian uh, intelligence combined possibly with bungling along the command line. Some people might have realized, but when they passed the information, nothing was done in relation to it, or, or there was an excess of, um, they, they were excessively confident, or I don't know exactly. I mean, the, the Russian regime is a Bonapartist regime, and a Bonapartist regime, one of its characteristics is precisely the fact that uh, the leader, the main leader, in this case Putin, only wants to hear good news and people only want to give him good news because anyone who's the better of bad news might be removed from their position. So this might have had an impact. The Bonapartist character of the regime might have had an impact in the bungling of this uh, operation. Whatever the reason, the Ukrainians were able to advance very quickly and they moved uh, and, and, and the Russians were forced to retreat. This was not an orderly withdrawal of troops, this was a, a rout, a complete defeat in which uh, the, the Russian soldiers uh, left the front, leaving behind uh, some of their comrades in arms, uh, some uh, material, equipment, and so on. And there's lots of stories about uh, this. This was in this, in this particular section of the front. In about three or four days, the Ukrainians were able to reach Kupiansk, which is in the Oskil uh, River, which runs parallel to Severodonetsk uh, River, which is about which is means that the moving of the front line about seventy kilometers eastwards, and then 
faced with this situation, the, the, and then they also moved south towards Izium, which they also took. Faced with this situation, the Russians then decided to evacuate the whole of the Kharkiv uh, Oblast, the region, where they still controlled uh, a section in the north, in the border, and, uh, and so on. So they basically uh, retreated to a new defensive line along the Oskil uh, River, and they're now trying to uh, uh, solidify that uh, defense line. So yeah, this, this was a, a, a lightning offensive, a surprise maneuver on the part of the, of the Ukrainians, which took the Russian, that section of the Russian front by surprise and led to a, to a significant uh, victory in, in this uh, section of the front and a significant defeat for the Russians at this particular, at this particular point. Yes, thanks. Uh, and I would also say for all of you out there who might not know the geography of uh, of uh, Ukraine very well, I mean, it would it would be helpful to have a map uh, nearby by hand uh, while you um, while you're listening to this. But uh, but Kherson is in the south and and it's, and it's the westernmost part of the Russian military campaign, whereas Kharkiv is in the northeast. And the easternmost uh, part of, uh, or one of the most eastern parts of the Russian military campaign. So, so essentially, what you have is uh, is two offensives uh, very far apart uh, from each other. Um, and I would also add that uh, to, to highlight the gravity of the situation is that uh, it seems to me that this offensive by the Ukrainians took uh, a huge uh, number of uh, men. Uh, a lot of soldiers were were involved in this. Some people say nine, ten thousand people over the course of a, of a couple of days, which uh, which then could burst through the defensive lines of the Russians, which is also in an area where the Russians were the least. Uh, how do you say? Uh, they were most scattered. They were they were most thinly uh, uh, scattered in the, in that area. Um, now, what what I wanted to ask you, Jorge, is also what do you think? What was what was the importance of the uh, of Kharkiv for the, the Russian uh, operation? Yes, I, I think that after the beginning of April, when uh, the Russians withdrew from around uh, uh, around the north of the country, Kiev, uh, around Kiev and, uh, and Kharkiv, um, the the front in Kharkiv was important from the point of view of the Russians. For two reasons: one, because by by uh, keeping a certain number of forces along the the border in the north of Kharkiv, they they will then force the Ukrainians to maintain a defensive line, and uh, and and divide the forces. But also uh, along the Severodonetsk uh, river, the importance of this um, front was that it allowed the Russians to uh, keep the supply lines to Izium. Uh, straight from, from the Russian border. And also Izium was very important because it's just immediately north of Sloviansk and Kramatorsk, and therefore it uh, allowed the preparation of an offensive on these two important cities in Donetsk, which are under control of uh, U- Ukraine, from the north. Now this has been knocked out. Uh, these supply lines could not be maintained anymore. Izium was no longer defensible, and now the the, the Russians have had to uh, withdraw to uh, further back in their offensive, 
and they're no longer threatening Slovyansk and uh, Kramatorsk from the north. And this makes taking these two cities a uh, much more difficult uh, operation at the present time. Yes, and <clears throat> just to add to that, that the Slovyansk and Kramatorsk are the two most important cities in 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 the in Donetsk uh, in the Ukrainian-held part of uh, Donetsk, I would say. And if they would fall, obviously the 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 whole region would be uh, in jeopardy of, of of falling, basically in risk of falling, basically. Um, now, so where where do you think that we are at at this stage now after this Kharkiv uh, offensive? Yes, it's difficult to it's difficult to judge. Uh, it seems it seems that the Russian aim immediately after the offensive was to solidify the, the, the new defensive line along the Oskil uh, River. This they seem to have been able to do partially, although there's a lot there's a lot of news in the last few days about whether whether the Ukrainians have been able to cross the river. They seem to have crossed the river in a couple of places. And they seemed uh, at at one point they seemed they have they had taken part of Kupiansk, which is on the eastern uh, side of the of the Oskil River, but that's not clear. And then there's a lot of pressure on the Russian position in uh, Liman uh, and Yampil, which is uh, north of the Severodonetsk uh, River, which is the other defensive line that uh, that uh, Russians have. And here. It's clear that the Ukrainians have crossed the river on three different points, and they're putting pressure on this position of uh, Liman. Now, this is an important position, which I think the Russians will want to defend. And it seems that they are now moving uh, uh, several units to solidify this line along the Oskil River. So at this point, it's not yet clear whether this uh, offensive has completely finished. Or we still, uh, or we could still see more uh, Ukrainian uh, gains. Um, the, the verdict's still out on this. And finally, there's one one last point, which is that uh, the Ukrainians are also advancing in another point of the front uh, around Siverks, which is uh, uh, north of Lysychansk and Severodonetsk, and they're trying to advance there, Bilorovivka and uh, Kremenia and a whole number of other towns, which will give them access to Severodonetsk and, Li- and, Lihan- and Lysychansk from the north. But uh, here there's still battles going on. Uh, this is the situation. In the Kherson front, the, the Ukrainians did make some advances, but they were stopped on the tracks. And it seems they haven't advanced any, any further since. And the Russians are strengthening their defensive lines. This is the position at the front at the moment, I think. Uh, meanwhile, the the Russian the only place where the Russians are going on the offensive is uh, around uh, Solidar and Bakhmut in uh, Donetsk. But here, there doesn't seem to be any serious uh, advance, and the Ukrainians seem to be very well entrenched, and they're not giving ground. Yes, it seems like the uh, the initiative for now has passed on to the Ukrainians. What is uh, what is the the I would say what is the implications of this for the Ukraine? Because I remember, well, if you look back at the last uh, three four months, uh, there's been a lot of reports of widespread demoralization, heavy casualties on the Ukrainian side, um, a lot of desertions, people refusing to uh, join the army. Uh, now, what do you think is the effect? of this politically uh, within the Ukraine? 
Yes, it's quite clear that uh, the Ukrainian side was in difficulties. Uh, a war is not won or lost on public opinion, but public opinion and psychology of the masses play a certain uh, role. And in this case, when uh, large numbers of people were being uh, mobilized through the territorial defense, this was an important uh, factor. And uh, the morale of the, of the Ukrainian side was not very good for several months. They've had, they'd had one defeat after another, and they had nothing they could present as, as, a, as a victory. And this was also putting in jeopardy the supply of Western uh, military aid and, uh, and material because um, some, some voices in the West, <clears throat> including in the United States, were starting to say, well, is it worth to continue pouring masses of money into a war that uh, seems to be unwinnable or is not being won at the moment where we're only having losses. What's the point of this? We're throwing uh, good money after bad. And, and so th this was putting the, the Ukrainian leadership under extreme uh, pressure. They needed some victory and they needed some, something to present to their own population, to their own soldiers and to their own uh, allies or puppet masters in, in the West. So, and this has played this role. The Kharkiv offensive has been very effective in doing this. Uh, it has recovered the morale. It has broken the idea that the Ukrainians were on the losing side. It has shown them as capable of uh, winning and defeating the Russians, at, uh, at least in one section of the front. This has been then uh, obviously magnified by the Western uh, propaganda machine in the mass media to say that, well, this, this means that Putin is, has lost this war, Russia has lost the war, and so on. But uh, many of the, many in the military and political leadership in Kiev and in the West are, are much more cautious. For instance, even Biden, when he was asked, is this a turning point in the war? He said, well, uh, it's an important uh, victory, but it, it remains to be seen whether it's a, it's a real turning point. There's a, there's a newly released uh, uh, report by NATO, which says basically, basically the same thing. This is an important victory. But whether this is a turning point or a game changer that decides the, the future of this conflict, they say this is not. And this is going to be a protracted uh, conflict. The Russians still have a number of uh, advantages. So I will say from the Ukrainian side, this is obviously a very welcome uh, uh, victory that turns the situation around a little bit from what it was before. But whether this will have a decisive impact on the, on the conduct of the whole world or whether this changes the overall balance of forces remains to be seen. Yes. And uh, then obviously there's the other question is, what, what does this mean uh, for Russia? What what implications does this this defeat uh, in this battle has have on uh, on the Russian uh, campaign? It's very important from the Russian point of view because first, as as we have said, this is an important defeat, and this this cannot be explained away like uh, the retreat from Kiev and other areas in uh, April, which was uh, an orderly retreat in the face of not having achieved the aims. You know, in this case, we, what we've seen is a, is a defeat. It's an open defeat in which they've been uh, beaten on, on the, in the front and they've been forced to retreat. This has an important psychological uh, impact in uh, Russia. First of all, 
amongst those who supported the war from the beginning. There's, there's a layer of the population and the commentators, military commentators, some who are Russian nationalists, Russian imperialists, they were, they were pro-Putin forces. And they're now questioning the leadership of the campaign. Why was this allowed to happen? How did, uh, how did it come that we were taken by, by surprise? So this is quite important uh, from a psychological uh, point of view. It also has another effect amongst those who support the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And there were many of those in, in Luhansk, in Donetsk, but also in Kharkiv. These people uh, were are now being left at the mercy of the Ukrainian uh, troops that are advancing. And this, does, this, this, this uh, contains some, some lessons for people in other regions uh, that are dominated, uh, controlled by Russia, regions of Ukraine that are controlled by Russia. People will be thinking, well, uh, is, is Russia here to stay? Uh, is, this, is this a serious uh, invasion or are they going to be leaving? And, and this determines their attitude also towards this uh, invasion. But, but the difference is that for, the, the, for potentially, for Putin, this is a very dangerous moment. If this uh, defeat is then amplified and is defeated in other fronts or the, or the uh, withdrawal continues, then this can have very serious uh, impact. Uh, uh, a defeat in war can be the prelude for revolution, as we know in Russia and in other and in other places throughout uh, history. And this is what Putin fears. But uh, for this reason, Putin will have to reply to this situation. We have to reply very uh, sharply, and we have seen the outlines of this even in the last uh, week. Uh, first of all, he will have to send more troops. This is the point at which the Russian army is at a disadvantage. And we have seen already all sorts of reports about recruiting more troops from uh, prisons, being recruited into mercenary uh, outfits like the Wagner uh, Company and so on, the, the Chechen uh, troops that support uh, Putin being uh, raising more, more volunteers and so on they will have to send more troops. And at the same time, they have also changed some, somewhat their tactics. And in the last week, they've been uh, attacking, the Russian uh, forces have been attacking infrastructure targets, particularly power stations in Kharkiv and in other regions, in order to deplete the civilian infrastructure in Kiev, uh, in, in Ukraine, going into the winter. That is to cause the maximum uh, pain on the infrastructure, both for civilian and military purposes, so, so that companies, uh, factories cannot run, military hardware factories cannot uh, run, but also from the point of view of inflicting maximum amount of pain on the Ukrainian population, in the hope that this will turn some of them towards the, the, the camp that, that says, well, we need to make some concessions to the Russians, we need to go back to the negotiating table, and so on. I think this is one of the changes that this Kharkiv offensive has created in, in the way that uh, Russia is conducting the, the war. But we need to stress this point. If Putin loses this war, he's finished. And his only interest as a Bonapartist uh, leader of a capitalist state is precisely to stay in power. And so, therefore, he will he will have to use all means at his disposal to uh, send more troops, to send more uh, material, 
and to step up the campaign in one way or another in order to make sure that he is not uh, defeated and that at certain point he can he can uh, present some sort of victory the idea that he probably had before the summer that he will have the will, he will be able to present some sort of victory before the winter sets in and the winter will necessarily slow down the military campaign uh, is now ruled out it's clear that he had plans to maybe have the refer- a referendum in uh, in the Kherson uh, region to incorporate that region to the Russian Federation. That's now off the cards. Uh, he probably had the idea, perhaps, of taking uh, significant chunks of Donetsk before the winter, particularly the the, the Bakhmut Solidar uh, line. This is now uh, more unlikely than before. And certainly any idea of take, taking the whole of Donetsk is now ruled before the winter is now completely ruled out. So it's a, it's a significant setback. And uh, this has a lots of, uh, has a very significant impact, both from the point of view of the conduct of the military campaign, but also from the point of view of the psychology of the masses in uh, Russia. It doesn't mean yet that there is massive questioning of the leadership in uh, Russia, but the first cracks have started to appear. And if there isn't, if the situation on the ground is not turned around, this could grow and create a much more dangerous situation for for Putin. Yeah, I mean, uh, on paper, I would say, uh, of course, Russia is uh, the, the second army of the world. Uh, I know in in Western uh, in the Western press, they, they they try to poke fun of this and say, "Oh no, look at them; they're losing in Ukraine." But in a way. Uh, uh, the, the Russian army has not been fighting at full strength, and there, are, and there are political reasons to that. I would say, if you look at the situation, as you said, um, the Ukraine is it's, uh, Russia is is uh, is attacking with a force of around two hundred thousand, and uh, against an army in the Ukraine, which is uh, anywhere between uh, four and four hundred thousand and eight hundred thousand, uh, it's not really clear. And uh, normally, you say an attacking force should have. Four, four times the amount of, 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 of troop as the, as the defenders. So uh, there is a, def, a, a definite kind of disadvantage there. Uh, and the reason for that uh, is that Putin so far has refused for mobilizing uh, uh, the, the, the Russian society, i.e. drafting ordinary people into the army um, and, uh, and using them in this war. The, the main, the bulk of the people fighting this war are mercenaries, Chechens, um, or, uh, you know, the, the, the militias of the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics. And then a layer of mainly contracted Russian soldiers. I don't think there's really any uh, conscripted or at least very few of them, if there are any. Um, because I think the regime, the Russian regime realizes that a mobilization, a military mobilization of society would have significant political repercussions. At the moment, what's happening is that uh, they are, they're doing a shadow mobilization, essentially, getting, offering contracts, military contracts to young Russians, mainly in the Caucasian republics in very poor areas. Where, the, where unemployment is, is, is quite high and support for the war and for the regime is, is relatively high as well. Whereas uh, Moscow, St. Petersburg, Kazan, these uh, big industrial cities, uh, they have not really been mobilizing 
And the reason for that is, in particular, amongst the youth, there's not that much of an appetite uh, for the war. And they, and they, I think they're calculating that if there was a mobilization and you started seeing, uh, you know, bodies coming back to Moscow and St. Petersburg, in other words, that you, you could have important social uh, upheavals. But that puts them in a, in a bit of a tricky situation now, because on the one hand, they put forward all of these war aims, which was uh, the taking of the Donbass. And uh, all, what's left of that is the rest of the Donetsk governorate, the, the Donetsk Oblast. But with the present force, uh, forces at their disposal, it does not appear that they can do that, uh, at least not before the winter, uh, before winter set, sets in. Uh, on the other hand, if they, if, if they uh, and that will be a defeat, in a, in a, or that would be seen as a setback and cause uh, political turmoil. On the other hand, if they do what is necessary, i.e. to mobilize, uh, which would immediately give them a, a, a significant advantage, then they would they would risk setting in motion other social uh, forces that they couldn't control. So in that in that sense, it seems to me that Russia is definitely heading for social instability, regardless of where the situation uh, is uh, it, it ends up. Um, but how about the Ukrainian side? I wanted to ask you what you think because. Uh, what are the war aims of the Ukrainian side and, uh, and, from, and from the point of view of the West? And to which extent can they be reached at this stage? Yeah, just going back on to what you just said, uh, in fact, Arestovich, which, who is one of the presidential advisors to Zelensky, he said the similar thing. He said what Putin is trying to do in Ukraine, with a hundred, he's trying to do with 170,000 troops what, what it took Stalin 2.5 million uh, troops to achieve, i.e. The, the conquest of Ukraine. This is not exactly true. The two wars have very different characters. And also, Putin is not trying to achieve the, 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 the conquest of the whole of the, of the, of the Ukraine. But, but uh, the numbers are correct. Uh, when, when, when the Red Army was fighting the Nazis in, in Germany. It used 2.5 million uh, troops for battles that, uh, that are taking place in, the, in more or less the same places. And now Russia is trying to uh, defeat the, the Ukrainian army with much, much smaller numbers. So, so yeah, this is an important uh, question. Whether, whether this will lead to, uh, to turmoil in Russia, it, this is inevitable, but whether this will be the case now immediately or not is a different uh, matter because, uh, as you just said, the, the Putin will try to resist mobilization precisely because of this uh, reason. So he will have to do something which is a halfway house, increased use of his uh, main, uh, super, the, the field in which he has superiority, which is uh, firepower, and then somehow try to bring more troops in a way that doesn't involve open uh, mobilization. He needs to keep this as a so-called special military operation. I, it's not a war. Uh, he might even change the name to, I don't know, a counter-terrorist operation in order to be able to mobilize a bit more people. But uh, for political reasons of his own uh, stability as the Bonapartist ruler of this regime, he will probably not go for full mobilization unless it's completely uh, inevitable. Now, what, what are the war aims of Ukraine? Well, this is not very clear because it's one, one thing what they say publicly 
another thing is what they uh, what, what they really might be thinking that they can uh, that they can achieve or or not. Some some of the Ukrainian uh, officials have been saying that the aim is to defeat the Russians and re uh, regain control over over the whole of the Ukrainian territory, including uh, Crimea. Now I think this is completely ruled out. The the Russians, uh, well, first of all, the the Russians will uh, will fight tooth and nail not to be defeated in the crucial areas of the Donbas and uh, Crimea. But I mean, Crimea is extremely important from a geostrategic point of view for for the Russian uh, Navy. This is the the site of the of the the key site of the of the Russian. Uh, Navy in this in this region, and they will not give that up. And the reason they invaded Kherson uh, is in order to create a buffer zone to protect Crimea. And it seems to me it's very unlikely, with the present configuration of forces, that the Ukrainians will achieve uh, anything like uh, anything like that. So um, e- even with increased firepower and artillery on the part of the so supplied by the by the West. So I think it's very it's very difficult for them to achieve this. Even uh, scale down aims of, for instance, pushing the Russians back to the to the borders that existed before February twenty fourth invasion is will be in itself a very very difficult uh, war aim to to achieve. And particularly since the war is going to slow down with the arrival of the winter. Um, so I think that they're probably calculating that they will uh, solidify the gains that they have made in the last couple of weeks, and then they will prepare for a new offensive in, in the spring. And for this, they need the continuation of the support of the Western uh, imperialist powers that are backing uh, Ukraine in, in this war. They will probably be training new uh, Troops, which is happening already, thousands of Ukrainian troops are being trained in countries like uh, Poland, Spain, in the UK, and so on. And they will use the winter to replenish the more skilled uh, troops and try to launch some offensive in uh, in the spring. However, there is one uh, problem with this uh, with this plan, and the problem is this: that winter is going to be extremely harsh for Ukraine. Because of this, uh, because of the war in general, but also because of the of the attacks of the Russian army on um, infrastructure in relation to heating, power plants, and so on, but also from the point of view of Europe, Europe is in the middle of a massive cost of living crisis, and um, and this will have political and social consequences in the West, uh, particularly in Europe, but not only also in the United States, and the ability of this uh, imperialist government to continue their support for this, uh, for this war. We already saw massive demonstration in the Czech Republic, which was extremely confused in its political character. There were clearly uh, uh, far-right and right-wing populist elements at the head of this demonstration. But the fact that they were able to mobilize such large amount of people cannot be explained just because of their ideology, but because it reflected a growing opposition to the war in Ukraine on the basis of the fact that the war in Ukraine is causing suffering 
to the population in uh, Europe in terms of uh, inflation, in terms of higher energy bills. And this is also having an impact on the, on the economy. I was just reading an article in the, in the New York Times about scores of factories of all kinds across Europe having to uh, follow the workers, to send them home, work reduced hours or close down altogether for lack of uh, energy. Or rather, they, ca- they cannot pay energy at the price that is being supplied to, to them. And Putin counts on this factor. In fact, he is, he is using uh, this question of the energy supply as a, as a weapon of uh, war. It's a bit hypocritical of the European Union saying to, to say that Putin is blackmailing us by cutting uh, gas when in fact is the European Union that started introducing sanctions on Russia, therefore using uh, economic means as, as warfare. But uh, in any case, uh, leaving aside the question of recriminations and, and so on, which obviously happens in, in a conflict like this, the fact is that Europe is extremely dependent on Russia for sources of uh, energy. And these sources of energy are now uh, more expensive and more scarce. And, and the, this has a big impact on the, on the economy. And so uh, there, there, there is now, uh, there's now a, a massive crisis across uh, Europe. Most European countries are either in recession or going to enter into recession. And as I say, there's a, there's a massive increase of inflation to levels. For instance, in Germany, not been seen for 50 years. In Britain, the levels have not been seen also since the 1970s. And this, in turn, is creating uh, the beginning of a strike wave. Perhaps Britain is the country where this is more developed, but this is happening uh, elsewhere in Europe where unions are calling for protest. Why? It's very simple, because if you, if you are a worker on a, on a contract that's been uh, negotiated a year ago when inflation was 0% or 2%, and now inflation is 10% uh, annual, uh, and it's threatening to go up to 20%, for instance, as is the case, case in Britain, then you're losing, you're losing your purchasing power. If you do not go out on strike, you're losing your purchasing uh, power. And so this is like uh, a perfect storm gathering across uh, Europe, economic, social, and political uh, storm, which will have severe consequences. Uh, with the election of uh, different governments who perhaps won't be so keen on this uh, war, the discrediting of the politicians who've been uh, fueling the, the warmongering flames over the last few months, and uh, a growing concern over the question of the standards of uh, living, which, we, which is going to be uh, linked to also the question of the war in Ukraine. Grow- increasingly, the population in Europe is going to be asking, is it worth What's the point of pursuing this war, which is not in our interest, while at the same time we are made to pay through lower wages, lower purchasing power, higher energy bills, and a very serious economic recession. And so this, I think, it's an important factor in what happens in the war in the next uh, period. And it might force a number of uh, key European governments towards a position of uh, wanting to put an end to this conflict through negotiations, and, and they will in turn put pressure on uh, the, the government in Kiev to move in, in, in that particular direction. 
Yes, thanks. Just on that note, I know that uh, even a few weeks ago, um, U.S. Uh, was the defense secretary, no, as a foreign secretary, Blinken. Yes, yes. Was in Kiev uh, reportedly to push for uh, Zelensky to enter in negotiations with the with with the Russians. That was before, the, or that was actually during this Kharkiv uh, uh, offensive. Um, but has that has that position? changed and uh yeah basically has that, has that position changed what do, you, what do you think about that yeah it is possible it is possible that it has uh, changed slightly because obviously it's not the same from the point of view of u.s imperialism to be throwing money and material at a war that seems to be going nowhere than to be throwing money and material at a war that seems to be weakening uh, russia which is their aim in this in this conflict so this, this will give a new lease of life to the military uh, aid program to uh, Ukraine on the part of the United States. But, but this has certain uh, limits because if, say, the, the front line is now stabilized, the Ukrainians are again in a position where they don't seem to be making any progress and the Russians uh, are making maybe slow progress, the, the, the same questions will be raised uh, again. And, and on the two sides of the balance... The two sides of the balance, what, what you have is, on the one hand, the aim of U.S. imperialism, which is to weaken uh, Russia uh, as a rival as much as possible through this war in uh, Ukraine. And on the other side of the balance is uh, a serious economic recession with very serious economic and political consequences, not only in the United States, but also for, for, for the allies in, in Europe. The possibility that this will uh, increase the rift between uh, the U.S. and its uh, European uh, allies. So th this is obviously a, uh, an algebraic uh, uh, equation uh, and different parts of it are moving in different directions. But I think that this is, uh, this is basically what is, uh, what is uh, happening. In the case of Europe, there, is, there has always been less enthusiasm for this war, more reluctance to uh, supply weapons and uh, ammunition and money for it. And this is now, uh, this reluctance is growing with the arrival of the winter and all the economic problems from the lack of fuel or the more expensive energy bills that uh, Europe is, uh, that Europe is, is facing. And, and this we have seen quite clearly in the, neg in, in the last, uh, even in the last days. Oh, and in addition to this, there is another factor, which is that the United States military and other armies uh, in Europe have supplied so much ammunition and uh, material that they now depleted their own reserves. And uh, the, the manufacturing of uh, ammunition and, uh, and military hardware takes, certain, takes some time to go through the whole uh, process. And uh, so th this is another constraint on the amount uh, and the types of uh, ammunition and material that the West can supply to can supply to the to the Ukrainian uh, army. And another factor in all of this, which is openly being discussed by by Washington, is the fact that they do not want to supply types of uh, ammunition and artillery pieces that, that will allow perhaps the Ukrainians to hit. Uh, Russian territory, because uh, because uh, 
because Russia has uh, threatened that if this if this happens, then there will be retaliation at a higher level. And and the last thing that NATO wants is an open war between NATO and Russia. So they 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 operating within these uh, different constraints. Okay. Um, well, just uh, as a final uh, thing, uh, Jorge, if you want to maybe go back to what we started with. Uh, in this uh, extremely com- complex equation, as you said, what what is what can we do? What is the role of Marxists and revolutionaries? Maybe you can end on that. Yes, th- this is an important uh, question. Look, we can we can discuss the details of the war, what's happening at the front, and the political implications of that. But uh, war, war, as you uh, you yourself have uh, quoted Napoleon saying, is the most complicated of equations. And I wouldn't want to make very uh, uh, hard predictions about what's going to happen next because we can, there can be all sorts of surprises and changes. And, uh, and look, war is a science. And it's one that, that I have not studied. I'm not an expert on, on it. And therefore, I wouldn't want to, uh, to pass judgment. But the most important thing is what, what should we do as revolutionary Marxists in relation to this war? Well, first of all, it's, it's important to understand that we oppose this war. This is this for us, from our point of view, it's an inter-imperialist war, a war between different imperialist powers for spheres of influence, for markets, for sources of uh, raw material, for transportation of uh, fossil fuels and so on. And therefore, it's not in the interest of the working uh, class. And as I said at the beginning, Karl Liebknecht, the German revolutionary, said during the First World War that the main enemy of the, of the working class is at home. And I think that this should guide our intervention. The IMT, the International Marxist Tendency, has comrades in Russia who have carried out their duty of opposing the, the war opposing Putin's uh, war in, uh, in Ukraine because it's a completely reactionary uh, war. It has not, not an ounce of progressive content. Our task over here in the West, comrades in uh, Europe, in uh, Britain, in the United States, is to oppose our own imperialist ruling class, which is uh, warmongering in uh, Ukraine, which is prepared to fight Russia to the last drop of blood of the Ukrainian soldiers, not, not even their own, uh, their own soldiers. And they're using this uh, war cynically in order to weaken Russia as much as they can, which they see as a, as a, as a rival, perhaps a, a small or medium-sized rival on the world uh, arena. So, so that's what we should do. We should, we should then... Uh, we should, first of all, break through the fog of lies and propaganda that's behind this war that perhaps has now decreased a little bit. It's not as intense as it was in the first uh, months. But this is the, the, our, first, uh, our first duty and our first task, to oppose the, the, the fog of lies, war, propaganda, and so on, that our own ruling class is uh, spouting on the back of this uh, war in, uh, in uh, Ukraine. Instead of what some so-called leftists have done, which is to capitulate completely to the interests of uh, NATO, and they become advisors to to NATO and, and push for more weapons uh, to be sent to Ukraine and, and so on. This is a completely shameful position. Uh, we should link this question of our opposition to our own imperialist ruling class with the question of the cost of living uh, crisis. Why should workers pay for the consequences of a war that's been waged in the interest of the of the ruling class. And I think that here there are a lot of opportunities. 
the class struggle is on the rise again on both sides of the of the Atlantic. There's a wave of unionization and also strikes in the United States. There's a wave of uh, strikes and conflicts in uh, Britain and also to a certain extent in uh, Europe. And in this in these uh, conditions is where we have to intervene, uh, explaining clearly that we are against war, but that the only way to put an end to war is to put an end to the co- what causes war in, in modern capitalist society. And that is the existence of imperialism, the existence of the capitalist uh, system and the predatory uh, interests of the different imperialist powers to conquer more markets, to uh, conquer more spheres of influence, to export capital. Uh, and this they have to do at the expense of other imperialist powers. And this is, this is the origin of uh, these uh, conflicts, which can express themselves through trade wars, diplomatic conflicts. But in certain uh, instances, they break out into open uh, wars. It can be even regional wars or so on, but the cause of the suffering, the death of tens of thousands of people uh, and the suffering of millions of uh, people who have to emigrate from the countries, who have to uh, go without uh, without education, without healthcare, without housing and so on. And this is the real face of capitalism in the 21st uh, century, a system which is in, in its epoch of uh, senile decay. And it needs to be brushed aside from the face of the earth. And there's only one force that can do that, is the working class. But the working class needs to be armed with a clear revolutionary socialist uh, program. And, and this, is our, this is our task. The task of the small but significant forces of Marxism is to bring the program of revolutionary Marxism to, to the masses, to the mass of uh, workers and, and youth, so that armed with this program, we can put an end to capitalism and all the suffering it creates, including uh, imperialist war.